Thanks for tuning in to Three Strands Podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. So if you want to follow along in your Bible where we're going to be today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Most of the time, we'll flip around a little bit. All the verses will be on the screen, but the main text we're going to look at today is Acts chapter 2. Um, and I want to ask a favor of you guys, okay? So today, what we're doing is a little less like a sermon, a little bit more like a Bible class, okay? We're going to teach through a passage, kind of dissect it, look at it together. I'm going to stick close to my notes today uh, because I get a little angry about this topic. I don't want to do that. I want to stay like level-headed. And so uh, I want to just like stick to God's Word, stick to the notes I thought through ahead of time, um, with a cool mind. Um, and so, uh, but what I want to ask of you is that you'll give me some grace. So I know that in our room, we have a unique setting in our church, especially for our county probably, but we have a unique setting of three groups of people. In fact, I'm going to divide the room into three groups of people right now. I'm not saying that where you're sitting makes you one of these people, but we have three sections really, right? So you got this wing over here, right? You got this wing over here, and then you got this chunk in the middle, all right? I'm not calling any of you chunk. I'm just saying there's like a larger piece in the middle, right? And so um, uh, and yeah, that, that works out well because one of these groups is probably bigger than the other two, and that, that makes sense. So in this one group in our church, we've got people who were raised like very conservatively, right? They were raised in very conservative churches. Um, they uh, grew up like everything was like a ritual. Everything was like really ordered and structured, uh, and that's their background. We've got this other group of people in our church, is you guys. It's not really you guys, but you know what I'm saying. This other group of people, and they grew up in very charismatic churches, okay? You have very conservative churches, very charismatic churches. They were um, very uh, kind of fly by the seat of our pants in some respects and, and, and not quite as structured or orderly or ritual-like as the other side was and um, and I'm trying my best not to like name drop any denominations, okay? So what I don't want to do today with this text from God's Word is come up here and bash a bunch of other churches. That's garbage. I don't got time for that. Uh, what they're doing, it's on them. It's like I got enough of my own problems, not worried about what other churches are doing. Then in the middle here, we've got people that um, like they've got no background. They didn't go to church growing up. They're clueless, okay? They don't even know there's a difference between different churches, okay? And so that's what we've got. We've got the conservative group, the charismatic group, and the clueless group. Maddox, you're in the clueless group. Is that all right? Is that all right? So, but here's the thing. So for those of you who have only been to one kind of those churches, or for those of you who didn't grow up in a church or have very limited church experience, or maybe your only church experience is three strands um, church. And so what I want to do is kind of like let you behind the scenes just a little bit. If you grew up in one of these churches, like super conservative, um, you know, everything's like a ritual kind of church, and you walked into one of these kind of churches over here, one of these kind of charismatic churches, you would see and hear and experience like a hundred things that you think are of the devil, okay? And if you grew up in one of these charismatic churches, and that's the only place you'd ever been, and then you walk into like one of these really conservative kind of old school traditional churches, you'd see or hear or experience like a hundred things that you think are of the devil, okay? 
And if you grew up in this group that's like kind of clueless, you don't know, you wouldn't even know there was like a rift that existed between the two. You'd be like, you'd go to both and you'd be like, I don't even understand, like why do they hate those people or why don't they get along with, okay. So what I don't want to do today is to give you ammunition to hate on the other group. That's what I don't want to do. What I want to say is that I don't really consider myself either of those. And so within these two groups of churches, there's a lot of denominations. Maybe you've heard that word before. Denomination, just a word they'll use to identify we're like faith or we have like doctrine. And so you got all these denominations and over here on this side, you've got like Baptists and Presbyterians and I don't know, you know but like, and then over here, you've got like Assemblies of God and Pentecostal churches and, and, and all that. And, and it's like a lot of times they each think of each other as the enemy. And, and, and to be honest about it, and to be honest about it, some of them are the enemy on both sides. And, and what I want you to know is like whether you're Catholic or Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, full-on Pentecostal, whatever you are, Jesus saves people in those settings. And I've known people that go to Catholic churches and are Christians. I've known people that go to Baptist churches and are Christians. I've known people that go to Pentecostal churches and are Christians. But in case you were unaware and you're like, I'm on this side, and I've never been to that side, I want you to know now there are people that go to the Baptist churches that are not Christians. Just keep it quiet. They don't know that. All right? And there are people that go to the Pentecostal churches who aren't Christians. And there are people that come to three strands and aren't Christians. That's just the way it works. Okay, so I just want you to know that up front. I want to ask you to give me some grace today as I'm going to try to teach through this text so we can understand what's really happening, not to hate people, but so we can follow Jesus's instructions as well as we can. Does that make sense? So that's the goal today. I want you to know I'm not any of those denominations. People ask me a lot of times, get that question a lot around the county, like what denomination is your church? I don't know. They may ask you to just make something up and confuse them if you want. But I always tell them we're interdenominational. We're not non-denominational because that sounds like you don't know what you are. I don't know what we are. We're just non-denominational. Instead, I say we're interdenominational. I just try to take the best of all the denominations and use it. But really what we're trying to do with three strands is just stick as close as we possibly can to God's word. I don't really care. When I get to heaven, God's not going to ask me if I'm a Baptist, a Presbyterian, an Assemblies of God, Church of God, a Methodist, a Catholic. He's not going to ask me that. Guess where all those denominations are found in the Bible? Nowhere, right? They're not even in the Bible. And so what I am is a Christian. And what I'm trying to do as a pastor is lead our church to follow God's instructions as closely as we can, throw out all the stuff that isn't in there, and just stick to God's word. Now there's some stuff we do that's not in there. There's nothing in the Bible about lighting or sound equipment. But we just use that stuff. It's not sinful. It's just, it's, it's neutral. It's not righteous or evil. It's neither. There are churches out there that have you believe that sound equipment or instruments or the lights are the devil. And there are churches out there that have you believe you're not even a real church if you don't have those things. But neither of them are right. None of them are in the Bible. So those are all negotiables. What I'm trying to do is get us just to stick to the non-negotiables. This is what God's word says. 
And so we're going to follow. We're going to be not a denomination, but we're going to be Christians. We're going to be um, those who follow Christ. Okay? And so that's what we're doing today. We're going to be talking about some stuff. Maybe it'll be a little deep or a little over your head. That's okay. Just take some notes on what you can understand. Grasp onto the truth God is teaching and revealing to us today. And go out of here and live it out. But really we're talking about today, uh, I, I think the crux of the disagreement between these two sides, all the people in the middle that don't have a disagreement, I think the crux of the disagreement between these two sides is the word dispensation. And I just want you to know up front, I firmly believe there are dispensations. Dispensation is just a period of time in which God interacted with humanity in one way, and then sometime in the future, he changes the way he interacts with them. Now, the people on this side, a lot of times are like, yes, dispensations. They're like, That's like you're like talking my wheelhouse now. Hang on, I'm gonna come back and criticize you later. And the people over here is like, no, God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And I'm like, absolutely, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm with both of you. I agree. I agree there are dispensations that God has revealed himself to mankind in a progressive nature. Over time, I'm going to prove it to you in just a second. At least I think I'm going to prove it to you. Maybe you'll still disagree. But I also think that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. I think God never changes, but the way he interacts with us does change. Here's how I know that. In Genesis, my Bible tells me that God walked around in the garden with Adam and Eve every day. Anybody been doing that today? Anybody been walking around, seeing God with you every second of the day today? All right. And then, uh, uh, and then there was a time where God shows up to Moses on the top of a mountain, and he gives him the Ten Commandments engraved into some stone tablets and the rest of the law. Moses brings it back down and says to all the people, God wants us to live according to these laws. That was brand new. Up until then, there hadn't been any law. That's a different way of dealing with us. Then he decided he was going to have some prophets. He was going to communicate some messages to specific people and say, take that message to the nation of Israel, to the world. Tell them what I'm saying. That was a brand new thing. That wasn't going on in the Garden of Eden. God had a message for Adam. He just told him. Then he decided to send his son to earth, the God-man, and live a perfect life, and die on the cross, and rise from the dead force. And that was a brand new thing that had never been done before. And each step of the way is revealing a brand new piece of God's master plan. Now, if there were no such thing as dispensations, if God didn't interact differently with mankind in different eras of history, then why didn't all those things happen in the garden? I mean, what about the people that existed before the law or before Jesus came to earth? We look at it all in hindsight and we don't see what they saw. But think about it for a second. How unfair. If there are no dispensations, how unfair to all the people who lived between Adam and Moses that they didn't get the written law. How unfair that they didn't get to see the God-man walking around in flesh. God didn't have to do it this way. Why didn't he make, create Adam and Eve, hand them a book, with his completed revelation in it, and then the next day have his son be born. And have the very first people on earth execute Jesus and reject him, have him rise from the dead. All that could have happened, and yet it was thousands of years later. Why does that happen? 
because this is how God operates. God operates outside of time. He doesn't look at it like we do. But he reveals himself to mankind, obviously, through the Bible in a progressive nature. All of that revelation points to his son. From creation to the law to the prophets to the incarnation of Jesus to the church age we're in today. It all points to Jesus and his truth and grace. All of it. But it has to exist because it doesn't make sense if it doesn't. At the same time, I don't get to look at God and say, you're changing everything on me. Because he's not. It's the same message from start to finish. Nothing about God's character has changed. Nothing about what he expects from his creation has changed. All that's been the same from Adam till the end of time. So yes, there are dispensations, but yes, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those both can be true, and so we don't have to disagree about it. We can see what's obviously there, and we can believe what God says. We can do both those things at the same time. So I want to start you off, not in Acts 2, but way back in John chapter 7, where Jesus addresses this day we're going to look at, the day of Pentecost, the real day of Pentecost for us. Not the Jewish holiday, but the day that the Holy Spirit came and started to indwell believers. A brand new way of God revealing himself to humanity. But back in John chapter 7, Jesus is at this festival, this feast, this celebration. He stands up and he makes this bold statement. And I taught on this like a year or two ago in our church. But let me read it to you. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. Make a note of that. To everyone believing in him, not to the pastors, not to the apostles, not just to the men, not just to the select few, to everyone who believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit would be given. But then he says, but the Spirit has not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Now he has in our story, right? That happened two weeks ago, beginning of Acts. Jesus ascends back up into glory, back up into heaven, and now the Holy Spirit's going to be sent, going to come. Something's going to change. Jesus predicted it in John chapter 7. Let me read it again, verse 39. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him, but the Spirit had not yet been given. This was going to be something brand new. Because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. It's what drove Jesus to say to all his followers, which I shared with you last week or the week before, I can't remember now. It's like, it's to your benefit that I go away. How could it be to my benefit that Jesus leave me? And Jesus says, to your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then God can't send the Holy Spirit. But if I go away, you will get the Holy Spirit, all of his power, and you will do greater works than I've done. And sure enough, they have. Sure enough, if you read through the rest of Acts, they did greater works than Jesus did. Where Jesus reached the nation, they reached a world. They took the gospel message and the good news and hope of salvation to the Greeks and all the Gentiles, to the Romans, to the Asians. They took it all over the world. And we're here today because of that effort. 
or we'd still be outsiders. But the Holy Spirit empowered them to do this amazing thing, and they weren't qualified to do it. They were just blue-collar, normal, ordinary guys who made all kinds of mistakes and didn't know that much about religion. And the Holy Spirit is going to invade their life today in this text, and everything's going to change. They're going to become so powerful. They're going to change the world. It's still being changed today. And I think it's the best of all of God's revelation. I think he's tried it all. And we've rejected it all along the way. And we're still rejecting it today. But I think it's the best what we have right now. The Holy Spirit living inside of me, giving me unlimited power, unlimited security, unlimited comfort, unlimited presence of God. This is brand new in Acts 2. It's never happened before. And we're about to see it together. So then you get to Acts 1, and it's when Jesus is ascending back to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. You'll remember from week 1, Jesus tells them it's coming, right? Here's what he said. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, it would be 10 days later, in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's really what we're talking about today. So you can be sure what takes place in Acts chapter 2 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake about it. Jesus said it was coming in a few days, and a few days later it shows up. All right? So if anybody talks to you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or sometimes you'll hear people say the baptism of fire, because John the Baptist, when he baptized Jesus, said, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to latch. He will baptize you with fire. All right? But make no mistake, the Holy Spirit is not fire. You make a bonfire at your house, that's not the Holy Spirit. And and Jesus said he's going to be like a river of living water flowing out of you. The Holy Spirit is not water, okay? We're not praying to water. We're not worshiping fire. In this passage we're going to look at today, it says the Holy Spirit shows up like a mighty windstorm. He's not wind. He's not earth, wind. Or fire, you got, okay. He's not any of those things. These are just illustrations so we can tangibly see what is invisible. You got it? And, and I have to say that because we run into people all the time that see things and call it God. I had a tingle on my spine. It must have been God. It could have just been a bad burrito. Like literally in the last couple of years, we had somebody tell us like they saw a squirrel on the road and knew it was the Lord. I'm like, probably not. It's probably just a squirrel, you know? My emotions, my feelings, my tingles, my sights, those aren't the Lord. The Lord has revealed himself in many ways, but he's not a totem pole. He's not a dance around a fire. He's not any of those things that pagan cultures are teaching their people is how you connect with the afterlife. He is a revealed God, and he tells us exactly how he reveals himself. Sometimes he chooses to reveal himself in ways that we have to observe that don't seem to make sense in the moment. I get that. you got Moses with the burning bush, and you've got... Uh, the talking donkey in the Old Testament. you got all this stuff going on, and sometimes it looks kind of wacko to us. 
And so this is what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. Let me read you the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. It's basically the whole thing today. And then we'll just kind of follow up on it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers. Who are all the believers? Well, we know back from Acts chapter 1, this is about 120 men and women. About 120 believers at this point. It's like a three-strand church, basically. It's like just a small group of people. And they're all meeting together in one place. We don't know where it's at. Maybe it's the same place they were in before, in that upper room. Who knows? Verse 2. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven. Underline that word, like. Like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. It wasn't a mighty windstorm. Just like a mighty windstorm. You don't have to be in the middle of a hurricane to find the Holy Spirit. Okay? Just like a mighty windstorm. It was loud. Everybody could hear it. It was a roaring sound. It filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like, underline that word like, then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. The house wasn't on fire. Nothing was getting burned up. They weren't dancing around like the whole house being emblazed or anything like that. Just looked like tongues or flames of fire settling down on each person's self. Underline that word, each of them. Underline those words, each of them. Then verse 4, it says, In everyone present, not just the men, not just the apostles, not just one charismatic leader, Every one of them began to speak in other languages. That's a great translation for that. In other languages, some translations put that in tongues. I'm going to show you later on in the text why that other languages is a good translation of that. As the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. This is the day of Pentecost. This is the beginning of the church. Up until this point, there is no church. There is Israel... And there's some outsiders that are willing to come along and tag along with the Israel way. And now God's going to do something brand new. We don't have time to dig into Jeremiah and Isaiah, even in 1 Corinthians, where all this is detailed. You should study that on your own. Isaiah's prophecy about speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, great text on clarifying confusion on speaking in tongues. But I'm annoyed almost that I have to even talk about speaking in tongues today. Because the point of this passage is not speaking in tongues. The point of this passage is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you're going to speak in other languages that you don't know. It did for these people. It's what happened here. All of them. I know that because look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a second. Paul talking about the confusion around speaking in tongues. In the Corinthian church, there were people bashing other people because they couldn't speak in tongues. They were telling them like their salvation wasn't real because they haven't spoken in tongues yet. And so they were like, well, I can speak in tongues, so my gift is better than yours. Paul's going to clarify that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, the human body has many parts, But the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. That's us, the church. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. Now listen to what he says. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. We all share the same spirit. You get it? 
It doesn't matter how new you are as a Christian or how old you are as a Christian, how mature you are in the faith or how immature you are in the faith, how much of the Bible you have memorized and how little of the Bible you have memorized, you get the same Holy Spirit. When you decide to follow Jesus and you believe in him and only him for your eternal salvation, surrendering all that you are to his leadership, you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit in that moment. You don't get part of him. You don't get like the beginner stuff and then the pastor gets the good stuff. Doesn't work like that. Paul would go on in this chapter, read the whole chapter for yourself sometime. He'd go on in this chapter, in chapter 12, to say, we're all given different gifts from the Spirit. He'd list, he'll list them all in there. Some of us are pastors. Some of us are teachers. Some of us are encouragers. Some of us have the gift of generosity. Some of us have the gift of speaking in tongues. But all of them are equal. None of them are better than the others. We just all have different gifts from the Holy Spirit. And so if your gift is preaching, preach out with courage. If your gift is generosity, give generously. Give more than everyone else is giving. If your gift is encouragement, encourage people all day, every day. If your gift is speaking in tongues, then speak in tongues. But it doesn't make you more Christian to be able to speak in tongues. And this has to be, all the people over here need to know, this has to be talked about in our church because there are churches out there telling people, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not really a Christian. As if that was the point of this passage. But the point is being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the emphasis in the text. All right, now notice that nowhere in this text, in Acts chapter 2 that we read, nowhere did anybody pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. That didn't happen. They didn't perform any kind of ritual. They didn't go through any kind of ceremony. Nobody had to get hyped up emotionally. The music didn't have to be loud enough. There wasn't one guy at the front that had the power of the Holy Spirit and punched them with it. None of that happened. They didn't have to pay any money to get it. If you send me $20 and support our ministry, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. That didn't happen. They didn't do anything for it. God wasn't responding to their request. God was delivering what he had promised he would do. All of my believers will get my spirit. I will send it. Go wait for it in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere till you get it. I'm going to send him. And every believer from Pentecost on, when they decide to follow Jesus, is baptized in the Holy Spirit. I've already read it twice. I'm going to read it to you again just a little bit. But we all get the same Spirit. We all are baptized in the Spirit. We all get filled with the Spirit. The promise God made is that he would send the Holy Spirit. And when that happened, he would create a new dispensation. We call it the church. This is brand new. Doesn't feel like that does because it's the only life we've ever known. But if you could go back in time, 2,000 years, you would see that there was no church. This is like a new experiment for God, a new revealing of his person and his plan and his gospel. It's not wrong, it's just different. 
You say, it's 2,000 years. Why is it lasting so long? Sometimes dispensations last a long time. There's going to be one coming in the future for 1,000 years where Jesus comes back to earth, rules and reigns as king. Is that happening right now? What city is Jesus sitting on the throne in right now, governing? Well, that's going to happen in the Bible. Is that a different way? The time between the giving of the law and Christ coming to earth is about 4,000 years. That was a long time. And here's the thing, no matter what dispensation you're in, you always look at the other ones and think, if I was just in that dispensation, everybody would believe. If I was just during that time where God showed up on the mountain and gave me the law, I'd really believe him and follow him then. Yet Moses still made mistakes. Most of the people of Israel rejected him. If I was just around when the prophets had all this miracle healing power and God was giving them direct messages, I'd believe everything they said because I'd be seeing Elijah call down fire from heaven and I'd be seeing them raise people from the dead and I'd be seeing them do all kinds of magnificent things. I'd believe, but yet they didn't. If I was Adam and Eve walking around the garden, I would have never eaten that fruit. I'd have been faithful to the Lord. I'd have walked with him every day and it would have been the best. But you wouldn't have. If I'd have been on earth when Jesus was here, <laughs> if I'd have been one of these guys walking in his shadow, listening to him teach, watching him do miracles, I'd have believed, I would have never turned my back on him. Yet they all crucified him. Now here we are today. And I think if you could, and we all look at those things, if I could just have been in those times, it would have been so much easier. So much, and I think if all of them could look at our time, they'd be like, oh man, if I had all of God's word in a book to know exactly what to do, if I knew the whole story of what Jesus was going to do on the cross, if I could have known he was going to rise from the dead and had already heard from hundreds of witnesses that they saw him alive, I'd really believe, but they don't. Do you get it? This is the point of all these dispensations, that God is trying everything to get to you, to get his message to you, to get his gospel to you to invite you to follow his son. And we keep rejecting it all along the way, no matter what he tries. Just a side note, I want to make like kind of a cool picture for those of you who like, maybe like to just kind of think next level about the Bible. So the Passover celebration, I said, this was the celebration where the Jews, and they still do it to this day, celebrate the freedom from slavery in Egypt. And just like recap real quick, what they had to do in that moment, the, uh, the Lord told them through Moses to, to kill a, a firstborn lamb, take the lamb's blood and wipe it on their doorpost. And that night, the Holy Spirit was going to come through Egypt and kill off every firstborn human and animal, except for those who would wipe the sacrificial lamb's blood on their door. And, he would, and those people, he would pass over their house. And they would celebrate that every year until Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead. And he became better than the Passover lamb. So we don't ever do that now. Because the Passover lamb in Egypt just protected them for a day. And all their animal sacrifices they would do protected their sins and their hearts and their souls for a year. But Jesus says, I died once for all. And so there's this like incomplete picture in the Old Testament of the Passover lamb. And Jesus comes and on that same day, on that same day, he exponentially increases the power of the Passover. Then 50 days later, they have their next holiday, Pentecost. Pentecost for Israel is a celebration of the giving of the law to Moses. 
And so they, they kind of calculated that, that God gave Moses the law about 50 days after the Passover, after they left Egypt. They're wandering around the wilderness. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and God gives him the law. He comes back down to commemorate it every year, 50 days after Passover. They celebrate the giving of the law. And here, 50 days after Passover, God said something better than the law, the Holy Spirit. And again, you see this incomplete picture in the Old Testament of the law, but the law couldn't save me. The Passover lamb couldn't last, but Jesus could. The Holy Spirit does. It's like this beautiful picture threaded throughout the whole Bible. I don't know if you can see it or not, but I just find that like super fascinating. This is God's plan to build his church and to do it through the Holy Spirit indwelling all of his believers. It's what unites us. It's the only thing that unites us. And we are no longer a nation or a race or a gender. Instead, we are a church united by the Spirit. Because some of us shave and some of us grow beards. And some of us are charismatic and some of us are conservative. Some of us are white, some of us are black, some of us are young, some of us are old, some of us are men, some of us are women. But that doesn't define us anymore. What unites us and what defines us is the Holy Spirit living inside of me. The baptism of the Spirit. That's what makes us one. It's not that you think like I think, that you have the same favorite sports teams that I do, that we, have the, we share the same hobbies. We might not even have all the exact same beliefs. But we got the exact same Holy Spirit. That's what makes a church. That's what makes this dispensation so unique. Now look with me. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Let me read it to you. God has now, this is this mystery I told you about last week, the church not even revealed to the New Testament. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ. This is the plan, right? Which is to fill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance. Sorry, 100% Arminian people. He chose us in advance, and we, he makes everything work out according to his plan. Just reading what's there. Okay, what's he saying? Leave that there for just a second. What's he saying there? He's saying, God's got a plan. He's sticking to the plan. His time for ending this dispensation will be on his own schedule, not yours. And when the time is right, he's going to bring everything together under the authority of Christ and enter, enter into this new dispensation where Jesus rules and reigns over all of us. That's what he's saying so far, right? This is God's plan. He's going to make it work out just the way he purposed it and planned it. Look at verse 12. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles, that's all of us, have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, when you believed in Christ, he sealed you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. Not 10 days later, not after your confirmation class, not after the pastor prayed over you, none of that stuff. When you believed in Christ, you were sealed. I bracketed the word sealed because in the NLT, it's a bad translation from the NLT on this one, but in the NLT it says he identified you as his own. That's 
falls way short. The actual word in Greek is they sealed you as if you were like a Roman government official and the emperor of Rome or the Caesar would put his uh, hot wax on a document and press his ring insignia in it to seal it and nobody could open it but the right person. That's what God does to you when you believe in Christ. He seals you for the day of redemption. And nobody can take that seal, bust it open, steal it back, rewrite history. He's got you. This is permanent language being talked about in here. Let's read the rest of it. You see if it doesn't sound like that to you. He sealed you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee, not his might be or may happen someday. It's his guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised. What's that? Heaven, eternity, life with him. And that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Man, we just don't have time to get into all of it today. This speaking in tongues is really a sign. It's really a sign to announce that there was going to be some change, something new, some judgment. The judgment in that moment was that Israel was losing favored nation status. God was about to unleash his gospel on the Gentiles and call it a church. The Jews were going to kick the whole thing off. That we who are first would bring praise and glory to God, but now us Gentiles get in on the game too. Seems like it's taking a long time, but God's just being patient, wanting more people to repent and turn to him for help. All right. I, I watched a lot of clips this week that had me very angry on both sides of this, and I don't want to share any of those with you because I don't want to bash any denominations. I do want to read you one quote that I found in a doctrinal statement from a denomination. I'm not going to tell you the denomination, doesn't matter. I don't want you hating people. I just want to read you this quote. Here's what it said. This is their beliefs from, from God's word, according to the God's word to them. We believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2, is given to believers who ask for it. I didn't see that in the text for sure. And should be required or requested frequently, possibly even daily, as one experiences a renewed need for God's power or the absent feeling of God's presence. I just want you to know, I didn't see any of that in the text. And these people, these 120, that got baptized by the Holy Spirit, the Bible never records them asking for it. And they never get it again after this moment. They just keep it. Every time Peter gets up to preach, every time John goes to perform a miracle, they're not asking for the Holy Spirit to empower them again. They just get it. They get the power. I'm not Popeye walking around looking for my daily can of spinach. I'm a Christian who has the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I don't lose him because I overslept. I don't lose him because I don't feel it sometimes. It's not about my feelings. Nothing in this text had anything to do with how those 120 people felt. It was about what we believed. And I get the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, he seals me. And he guarantees me an inheritance. And he purchases me as his own. He doesn't rent me. He doesn't just like put a postage stamp on me. It's the emperor's insignia. 
man, I, I'm so mad sad. I was telling everybody like, in the prayer this morning, I feel like I'm on home. Like, I'm so mad sad about this whole thing because speaking in tongues isn't even the point of this passage. And yet there's people out there peddling, if you send me money, I'll give you the ability to speak in tongues. And if you just shake in front of me, I will transfer my Holy Spirit power to you. Who are you? You're giving people the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is yours to delegate out to people? It's crazy. All right, so we got to answer two quick questions about speaking in tongues, just so we're all on the same page, speaking in other languages. What is it? Why is it used in this passage? Let me read you the context of the passage, the rest of it. Verse 5 says this. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Underline that. That's a good one. Devout Jews from every nation living in Israel or Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, it got everyone's attention. Makes sense, right? So they came running. They were bewildered to hear their own languages. That was their own, like language, known languages, right? I get it. There's like the speaking in tongues. It's like a known language. There's the speaking in the tongues. It's like a heavenly language. I get it. I hear all that on this, on this side over here. I hear all of that, right? I get it. But that's not what's going on in Acts 2. Because all these people that run down to hear what's going on are bewildered because they hear people talking in their native language. And, and none of them were angels, so it wasn't an angelic language. It was a real language, right? So they all run down there to hear what's going on. They're completely bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. They said, how can this be? They exclaimed, these people are all from Galilee. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. There it is again. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs from all over the world, right? And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. All right, what is it? What is it? It's just the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to speak in a language you don't know. That's speaking in tongues. You got it? The Holy Spirit giving you the ability to speak in a language you don't know. Simple. Don't overthink it. That's what it is. Now, why was it being used here? Let me give you the three reasons I can see in the text why it was being used here. Reason number one, there were people from all over the world there who spoke all kinds of different languages. And this got their attention. It would get our attention too. Reason number two, it amazed them and got their attention. So, so it's like God's looking for a way to start something new and he grabs all their attention. And then reason number three, many of those people there probably never even heard of Jesus. They're all from other countries. They're all from outside of, of Israel. And Jesus had just died on the cross and rose from the dead 50 days earlier. So he needed to get their attention. He needed them to be able to hear it 
in a way they could understand it. And he needed to be able to talk to them about the good things of God, the gospel message, the, the good deeds of God. Now, there's another reason we don't have time to get into all much. I already kind of mentioned it to you a little bit, just this whole idea of, of announcing there was going to be a change, announcing there was going to be something new. And that, that kind of takes place in the Bible. You can see that in Isaiah's prophecy about speaking in tongues. But we don't even need to get into that right now. We can just leave it at what we see. And I just want to give a few side notes on speaking in tongues. Here's the first one. I'm not against speaking in tongues. And I'm not for it. I just don't care. I'm not against you having the gift of generosity or not having the gift of generosity. I just don't care what gift you have. I just want you to use whatever gift the Holy Spirit gives you to edify and encourage the body of Christ. That's what they're for. You got it? Somebody asked me right before church, are you going to get up and start speaking in tongues? And I said, I can 99.9% .9 guarantee you I'm not. But if I do, you can be sure it's the Holy Spirit doing it. Because I don't know any other languages. Okay? So if that happens some Sunday morning, it's God, not me. All right? Now here's some questions if you are, a, I get it, there's cessationists, there's God's always the same, gifts are today. I get all that on both sides. None of that matters to me. I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But let me just give you some truth about speaking in tongues from God's Word. You can, we can, if you want to dig into this deeper later, come see me. We'll dig into the passages. We just don't have time for all that this morning. But just a couple of facts about speaking in tongues in the Bible. In the Bible, speaking in tongues was always connected to a sermon or prayer. You'll never find an instance of speaking in tongues in the Bible connected to a worship set. But today, it's almost always connected to a worship set. It's never about an emotional frenzy or emotional response to getting hyped up. It's usually part of the preaching or it's part of the prayer. Anytime speaking in tongues is mentioned in the Bible, I just made a list here in my notes so I can read these to you. There was never a mention in the Bible of any accompanying convulsing collapsing, chanting, or transfer of power from one person to another. In fact, those are the things you'd see often in pagan cults, even today. Getting ready to go out to war in Africa. We dance around the fire. We chant. We cut ourselves. We get hyped up emotionally. And now we're ready. It's also worth noting that speaking in tongues in the Bible only shows up here at Pentecost and then for the next 25 years. It's mentioned again in 1 Corinthians and after 1 Corinthians, it's never mentioned again in the Bible. It isn't, it isn't part of the church throughout the Middle Ages. It isn't part of the church in America until the late 1800s in Kansas. And it became this sign of salvation. But nowhere in the Bible is speaking in tongues the evidence of salvation. It's a gift of the Spirit. In much the same way that putting your money in the offering plate doesn't mean you're a Christian. And I don't want to sound angry. <laughs> I, just, I don't want to sound angry about this because it, it just doesn't matter that much. But I love verse 13. Last verse we're going to look at in this Acts 2 passage today. Look at verse 13, how he ends it. 
He says, but others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Here's why I love that. It's more evidence that if you lived in that moment, it wouldn't change anything. Oh, man, if people would just speak in tongues in our church, then everybody would believe. Apparently not, because some just thought they were drunk. If Jesus would just show up, they'd all follow him. Apparently not, because they didn't. It's like it doesn't matter. In fact, there's that story of the rich man and Lazarus where rich man dies and he is in torment. And he says, can you just send me back from the dead to tell my friends and family about the true gospel? Because I don't want them to be tortured for eternity. And Abraham says to him, like, it won't matter. They have the law and the prophets written down for them. If they won't believe that, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. It's an evil generation that says, show me a sign and then I'll believe, Jesus said. The sign doesn't matter. The Savior is what matters. I don't follow Jesus because I want to speak in tongues or because I want all this power from the Holy Spirit. I follow Jesus because he deserves it. Because he rose from the dead for me. I'm not a con artist trying to convince you to give your money and then I will package something in the mail of the Holy Spirit to you. I'll send you a piece of paper with some flame on it and you keep sending me money. That's garbage theology. That's nowhere in the Bible. You won't find one time where an apostle or a follower of Jesus offered to give somebody faith or to give somebody the power of God in exchange for any money or goods, ever. And if you think that's what we're after here, I beg you to keep your money. How can I sum up this teaching from God's word? If you are following Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Nobody can take him from you. You can't lose him or misplace him. You don't wake up with the flu tomorrow and because you feel so bad, he's not with you anymore. You get all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get at the moment you believe and follow Jesus. You have him living inside of you. In, in other words, if you are a Christian, you don't need any more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does need some more of you. Do you get it? This is the difference. This is the difference. I want to read you one more passage. It's in Galatians chapter 5, talking about this same idea, starting in verse 16. Paul says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. You have to let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Apparently, you can resist it. You can choose to do what you want. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. That doesn't mean you need more of Him. It means He needs more of you. Let me read it to you. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Your sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other inside of us. You get that? So you are not free to carry out your own good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation of the law of Moses. What's he saying? If you do what the Spirit wants you to do, if you let the Holy Spirit guide and direct your life, you don't have to worry about the law. You're not going to be breaking any laws. 
You're going to be doing all the right stuff. So don't worry. You're free from all that. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, uh, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and in case I left anything out, other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I've told you before, anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Fruit, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's fruit. It's where I grow and produce something. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things because you're keeping all the law if you're doing those things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our life. And it has nothing to do with how I feel. Because I rarely feel like being patient and kind. And I rarely feel like being gentle and loving. So I choose to follow the Spirit's leading. Not so I'll get more of him, but so he'll get more of me. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, I got it. You can't take it from me. I got all the power of God I'm ever going to get and ever going to need, and it's changing the world to this day, and we're so oblivious to it because we've never seen any other dispensation. You don't even know what it's like to live under the Old Testament law where only the Jews were following God. You don't even know what it's like to be cast out of the Garden of Eden and be clueless about what's next and have nothing written down and have the presence of God removed from your life. You don't even know. You don't even know what it's like to be walking around with Jesus and be part of the mob that turns against him because you would have. You don't even know. It's not better than, it's not worse than, it's just different than. But I get all the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to get when I lay down my life and surrender to Jesus and say, I'm going to follow you the rest of my days, no matter what, no turning back. Boom, baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be a flame of fire sitting on top of my head. Nobody in the room has experienced that. Nobody in the room here became a Christian and a tongue of fire came down and sat on their head for everybody to see. That has nothing to do with it. Just a visible sign in that moment of the filling of the Holy Spirit that was needed in that moment. It's not needed now. You know why? Because the people out there can see me loving them. Can see me giving them joy and gentleness and kindness. And that's better, Jesus says. That's better than if I were right there beside you. You want to reach the world and change the culture? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is the way to do it. It's better than the law. It's better than Jesus walking around with us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit coming out of my life in my day-to-day activities. It's the forgiveness of somebody who doesn't deserve it and the love of somebody who treats me like garbage. That's what will win people to Christ. That's what will change the world. And you have it if you're in Christ. If you're following Jesus, you have all of it you'll ever get. So go out today and live like you're loved. Live like you're saved. Live like you have the Holy Spirit. And if you're here today and you don't, now's the moment. I'm not going to smack you. I'm not going to ask you to lap the room. I'm not going to ask you to dive into our baptistry. You just tell the God of the universe, 
you give up your whole life to him. And you believe he's the only one that can save you and you ask him to save you. And in that moment, you get baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're still gonna make mistakes. He's still gonna need more control of your life. But you get all of him you're ever gonna get in that moment. Don't let anybody else sell you more. You're just wasting your money if you do. You get the same Holy Spirit I get, the same Holy Spirit every evangelist gets, the same Holy Spirit every apostle got. You can do greater things than Jesus did. You can change the world because the Spirit will start pouring out of your life. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this hard truth. Thank you for our church. I pray that the message of your gospel today, I pray that the truth from your word, the words we've read, the words we've spoken, I pray, God, that you would soften the hearts of all of us. That nobody here will have heard hate today. That nobody here will have heard uh, superiority or smugness or arrogance on my part. And if they did, God, would they forgive me and not you? Because that was me, not you. But God, I want everybody in this room to be filled with the Spirit. And all they need to have that happen is to ask you to save them and surrender everything they are to you. And so God, would you give people in the room today the courage if they've never done that to ask you to save them and to just tell you that they'll surrender everything they are to you for the rest of their life. And in that moment, they will experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Comfort them, God. Reassure them, God, because they may not feel a whole lot different. They may not think that their life's going to be any better. In fact, their life might get worse, but they'll have something they never had before. They'll have the seal from the king guaranteeing them a future inheritance, a promised eternity in heaven, and your continuing presence here on earth. It'll be the best. It'll be the best. God, give them the courage to step out and just speak to you honestly about that stuff today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, we'd love to meet you face to face. We gather every Sunday at 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park building. We hope to see you soon.